Welcome to the first episode of the podcast, Growing Guts. We're glad you're here. My name is Robert Fuller, and I'll be your host on this epic journey ahead as we discover what it means to conquer fear. And let's face it, it's an easy time to be afraid. There's no need for me to break it down because all you need to do is get online or turn on the TV and you're inundated with all kinds of bad news and predictions. The situation we're in is serious, as you all know. However, none of these things change the foundational truth of the Bible's encouragement. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9 This is exactly why the Growing Guts podcast exists. We want to learn to kick fear in the face. Because as FDR hinted so many years ago, fear itself is often a greater enemy than the visible dangers we face. Okay, let me paint a picture. Imagine you're living during World War II in German-occupied Europe. All you know is oppression and scarcity and fear. It seems like the Nazis will be there forever. The mere notion of an Allied rescue is so far-fetched, it would require a miracle of mountain-moving proportions. Now imagine you with your family, tucked away in some quiet little village in France. You have a prized possession hidden in the attic. It's highly illegal, might even cost you your life, but you treasure it like gold. It's a radio. You risk keeping it because you know what it brings you every single night. News from the good guys. News from the war. You hold on to every word you hear. You listen to find hope and are strengthened to persevere for yet another day. It was messages like these over the airways of war-torn Europe that helped the resistance endure playing no small part in bringing about the eventual end of World War II and the return of peace and freedom. Our dream and goal is that the Growing Guts podcast would play a similar role, however small, in bringing victory in your life in the area of fear. We know the issues are real. We're not after denial or the proverbial burying of the head in the sand, but we do believe that fear, if left unchecked, can be one of the most destructive factors in our lives. We're here to fight it as ardently as the resistance fought the Nazis. And know this from the outset. We don't presume to do this in our own wisdom or strength. The only true way of escape from all this anxiety and worry and fear is God himself. Take it from one of the best verses in the Bible on the subject. For God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love and power in a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 We're going to go on a journey together where we explore what it means to walk in courage and faith. The format of each episode of Growing Guts is simple. A personal story told from everyday people and a historical story derived from either the pages of history or the treasure trove of the Bible, which is positively brimming with stories of fear and courage both. So, without further ado... Let's get to it. And so you see what I've been telling you. It's nothing like it seems. 
what I've been telling you. Our first story takes place on a sunny summer day in the early 1980s. At the risk of seeming semi-narcissistic, this story comes from my own life. Simply because I have such a wealth of experience being afraid, I'm a perfect example of what not to do. I was nine years old the first time I realized just how deep fear had its claws in me. My dad had just bought our first family boat. It was an Alumacraft, a flat-bottomed, gray metal bass boat with a 40-horsepower outboard engine, a depth finder, trolling motor, and the bluest AstroTurf carpet you've ever seen outside of Boise State. Since my brothers and I were still boys, this craft was plenty big to double as a ski boat. And it was that day when Dad decided to teach his sons to water ski. Mom packed a picnic feast. Dad gathered the life jackets, the ski rope, and double skis, and we set out from Little Rock to Lake Norrell, a quaint little body of water perfect for skiing lessons and not too far out of town. Dad motored the boat to the center of the lake, cut the engine, tossed out the ski rope with a serpentine splash, and turned to his sons. Who's first? he asked. The answer was obvious. Eldest brother, J.D. My twin brother and I watched with a mixture of nerves and envy as J.D. hopped in the lake, donned his skis, and swam awkwardly toward the end of the rope, where he took hold. My bearded, sun-bespeckled father proceeded to shout out instructions until my brother called back that he was ready. With a satisfied nod, Dad pushed the engine into gear, glanced back one more time, then shoved the throttle all the way down. All 40 of that engine's horses bolted into action, thrusting the boat forward in a spray of white and lake foam green. J.D. rose halfway out of the water, then tumbled to one side with a splash, the rope torn from his hands. We curved back around to where he bobbed in the water, waiting for another chance. He tried again, improved, but still failed. Until finally, he was up, double skis bouncing over the water beneath his jolting knees. We clapped, we cheered, we whistled, until exhaustion drove him to let go of the rope and sink down into the lake. Now it was twin brother's turn. He got up even quicker, slicing over the wake like a pseudo-pro. I'd watched in relative silence as both brothers achieved success. No one was aware of what was going on inside my head. I tried my best to hide it, but the closer and closer my turn got to ski, the more and more I felt my stomach churning and swirling with palpable dread. I didn't want to ski. At. All. I knew my family would think I was crazy, so I didn't dare divulge my misgivings, but there was no denying the fact that I was on the verge of panic. At face value, one might wonder why, but I knew the reason exactly. It all went back to my favorite movie. In a house of predominant testosterone with no feminine influence, aside from mom, our movie collection was more action than romance, more sci-fi than fairy tales, and more horror than Disney fluff. And there was no movie I loved more than Jaws. From the moment we got it on VHS cassette, our VCR played this classic film multiple times a week. I couldn't get enough. The suspense, the music, the acting, and the chills I got every time that great white shark emerged from a churning surf bent on munching humans whole. It's a fantastic film. The first summer blockbuster in cinematic history. And, strangely enough, made the year I was born, 1975. Legend has it this first Spielberg film almost ruined summer tourism that year. People were so terrified of beaches. 
So, is it any wonder my nine-year-old brain was running wild with shark attack thoughts? Granted, it was a lake, and to my knowledge, there are no known shark species prowling landlocked bodies of fresh water. Then again, Jaws 3 had just come out in theaters, and though a decidedly worse film than the original, it was all about a great white shark dining on water skiers at a resort. And did I mention it was in 3D? Which made the carnage all the more real and in your face. Suffice it to say, my imagination was running wild. You ready? Dad asked as my twin climbed into the boat, dripping wet and invigorated by success. I nodded without a word, hesitated. It was truly all I could do to hop into that water, as if the sharks were just waiting down below to swallow me like a midday snack. The water was warm on the surface, colder at my feet. I thrashed about as I tried hard to slip on the skis, knowing full well such movement was like a catcall to sharks. Once I'd managed to pull on the skis, all I had to do was swim toward the ski rope and grip it for dear life. But that's when I decided to risk a quick look down into the water. I'd never been in a lake before and had no idea what to expect. I knew it was deep, but how far down could you see? The moment I dipped my face into the water and looked down beneath my dangling legs, cold chills swept through my entire body. It was dark, dark, eerie green, seemingly bottomless, and quite possibly the most terrifying thing I'd seen in my entire life up to that point. I jerked my head out of the water, saw I was closer to the rope's end than the boat, and swam as fast as I could toward the bright yellow handle to get my skiing duty done as quickly as possible. With knuckles gripped white around the handle, I positioned my skis just as Dad had told my brothers to do. I just knew sharks were swimming beneath me, ready for a feeding frenzy. So I shouted with as much fake calm as possible that I was ready. Dad nodded his customary nod and pushed the throttle. The rope went taut in an instant and yanked me out of the water. Before I even knew what was happening, I was standing straight up on two skis. It had taken my brothers several times to achieve such a feat so quickly, but I suppose they simply lacked the motivation of survival. My family clapped, they cheered, they whistled. To them it looked like I was smiling from ear to ear and squinting gloriously in the sun, laughing at the joy of it all. But I was actually screaming at the top of my lungs, my expression distorted by panicked sobs. I just knew the shock was right behind me, its massive triangle fin slicing up through the water. I don't recall how long I stayed up, but I do know I didn't move an inch to either side, being so terrified of falling into the jaws gaping wide in the depths beneath me. But then there were the waves. They appeared so quickly mere feet up ahead, I had little time to prepare. They might as well have been ramps. My double skis slammed into the first wave, which sent me airborne, straight up, then down into the second wave, where the tips of my skis cut into the water at such a steep angle, I was thrown forward, face planting in the most fantastically agonizing splash. The next thing I knew, I was staring straight down into those hellish green depths. And for a millisecond, I could have sworn I saw a shark swim past in the darkness below. Once the boat curved round to fetch me, I've never swam so fast in my life, clambering up the side of the boat like a hermit crab and collapsing onto an open seat, trembling, in tears, and barely able to explain my hysterics. My family looked at me like I was insane, and in a way, 
I guess I was. The sad truth of it all is that I didn't try water skiing for three years after that, all because of unfounded fears. What if I'd never seen Jaws? What if my brain had been free of those horrid images, fictional though they be? The lake water would still have unnerved me. It still does to this day, if I'm honest. But I do believe I would have learned to ski that day and loved it. So what's the point of the story? What we think about matters. The meditations of our mind, though only a series of electrochemical reactions in the brain, absolutely have an effect on our day-to-day -day lives. As many have quoted over the years, Watch your thoughts, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become your character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. Like the programming of a computer, the sowing of seeds, we will reap what we sow. We will bear fruit from what we plant. If you let fear clog the brain, you're willfully cutting yourself off from a joyful, peaceful existence ordained and provided by God himself. Though sharks are real and people have been attacked by them, they don't live in lakes. And the likelihood that I was at risk of becoming a shark snack that day are so minuscule I'd more likely be struck by lightning three times on a Sunday. So why was I so debilitatingly afraid? Because I'd spent years staring at the wrong thing. My brain was filled with sharks. So, what are you afraid of? What's holding you back? What terrors have you harbored in your head? You have to realize they aren't welcome any more than a mangy house guest spitting on the floor. Tell them to go. And with God's help, I can promise you, you'll see them fade away bit by bit. Take heed of what you're taking in, too. Guard your heart like a citadel, for from it comes the wellspring of life. When thoughts of hopeless dread show their faces, don't invite them in. Shut them down. The less you pay them heed, the less they'll come around, I assure you. A helpful tool I've used for decades, among other things, is what's called springboard prayer. Here's how it works. A thought hits you in the face. You don't even feel you can stop it. It might be fear, it might be anger or lust or anything out to get you. What you do to see it vanquished is not trying hard to stop thinking about it, but rather using its arrival as a signal to pray, to talk to God. It's really that simple. He is ready to help you at every turn. There is a way of escape from fear. We are not helpless. We are not trapped, but we must turn to God for help. Years later, on a glorious summer day, much like the first one I mentioned, I finally got back in the water to ski. We had a new and better boat, bigger and better skis, and a new lake ten times as large. What was the trick that got me back in the game? I'd like to say it was pure willpower that overcame my fear. But if I'm honest, it was the fact that my big brother was out there with me, since we now had double ropes. His coaching and company were helpful, for sure, but I can't help but think somewhere deep down in my psyche, I believed him skiing beside me lessened my chances of being eaten by 50%. Not bad. Either way, once we popped up on our skis and glided over that smooth as glass water, it felt like heaven. I'd beat my fear, and that particular brand of phobia would never touch me again.
Imagine the scene. A lone boat in a storm, tossed violently about, on the verge of capsizing and going down with all hands. Those in the boat were frantic with fear. Many of them being fishermen, they were well aware of the danger. They knew how fragile a man's life is when the sea roars and the sky pours out its rage. It just might mean the end. And for this reason, it made a single fact stranger than ever. One of the men, the leader of the group in fact, was apparently not afraid at all. So absent was any hint of fear in the man that he somehow managed to catch a nap in the bottom of the boat where he'd found a soft spot to snooze. He was either totally oblivious to the storm, which seemed impossible since half the men were near to puking over the edge of the boat from seasickness, or he was so at peace with the situation as to seem delusional. Some of the more frantic of the group rushed to the snoozing captain and begged for him to save them, asking him if he even saw the storm at all. The man stirred awake, opened his eyes, and sat up, looking into the terrified faces of the men. Thunder rumbles overhead as the boat rocks back and forth, misted with spray as waves crash against the side of the vessel. Still, the man asks them a shocking question. Where's your faith? They must have looked back in stunned shock. What kind of question was that? Didn't he realize they could die? How he stood there without a trace of concern was a miracle in itself. But they hadn't seen anything yet. For right then, their fearless leader spoke straight to the storm, commanding the wind and the waves to be still. And in a moment, they were. The winds vanished. The waves calmed. The rain disappeared. I can't help but imagine the clouds parting to let in a golden beam of sunlight, illuminating the peaceful sea in a glorious display. Jesus had stopped the storm, and the disciples could hardly believe their eyes. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They pondered among themselves. Don't we each have storms in our lives? Some small, some large, some imagined, but certainly some real and dangerous as they come. Tragedy, sickness, disaster, ruin, or maybe just plain and simple wounding. All very real stuff. When you think about it, it's totally logical to fear. It makes perfect sense. The dangers and the threats to our lives are not fairy tale boogeymen. They exist. Yet somehow, by way of example in this story, we are to believe, to trust, to have faith in the one who rests peaceful at our side, unfrantic, undisturbed, yet ready in a moment to speak to our storms and calm them with a word. Jesus is not outside our storms looking in, like an old man with a telescope in the sky squinting through the eyepiece at our calamity below. He is with us, and this divine proximity is the very reason we can let fear fall to the wayside and allow faith to rise and stand front and center. Let him speak to your storms. Let him speak to you in the midst of the storm, instead of listening to that mental throng inside your head, awash in panic and pandemonium. Now listen to the pure and perfect words of Jesus himself. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. John 14, 1. And I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. 
In this current global storm, we can take heart. In this apparent instability of so much around us, we can trust God. He has overcome. And as his children, by default, so have we. And that is an encouraging thought. Still, my darling, all is well, my darling. Your anxious heart may as well be stone. Oh, it weighs you down deeper than you know. Yeah, it weighs you down deeper than you know. Growing Guts is produced by 963 Media a nonprofit production company committed to telling the stories of God. If you'd like to help us continue to tell more stories of conquering fear, consider making a donation at 963media.org. That's the numbers, 963media.org. All donations are tax deductible. We want to truly thank you for listening. And please subscribe and leave us a review. Tell your friends and family and whoever else about Growing Guts. The more people able to conquer fear in this fearful time, the better. Also, check out our sister podcast, Failure Junkies, about people in history who have learned the art of turning failure into fruit. God bless and Godspeed. Speed.